Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Lizzie Jenkins, a descendant of the Rosewood Massacre. My mom said, my sister suffered, therefore you must tell the history. So that's what I try to do. We'll discuss the history of public health in Florida. During not infrequent outbreaks of contagious diseases, the battle to contain the disease was secondary to the battle to contain the news. And the practice of redlining in Jacksonville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. They say the whole thing started with Fanny Taylor's lie. That spark lit the flame, fear and hatred fed the fire. Truly, it started centuries ago. That's bluesman Eric Bibb performing his song about the Rosewood Massacre of 1923. Lizzie Jenkins is a Rosewood descendant. She spoke with Holly Baker, archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa and public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society. On New Year's Day, 1923, a white woman from Sumner, Florida, named Fanny Taylor, was assaulted. It was claimed that her assailant was a black man from nearby Rosewood, a predominantly African-American community in Levy County, Florida. A few days later, the accusation led an angry mob of white supremacists to attack the town of Rosewood in retaliation. The mob terrorized Rosewood and burned down nearly every structure in town, wiping out the once prosperous community. The remaining residents were driven out of town permanently. The death toll of the massacre is not truly known, but some survivors' stories indicate there may have been up to 27 black residents killed. Most people who lived through the massacre never spoke about it again. The story of Rosewood was largely unknown until the 1980s, when it was finally brought to public attention by a journalist. Lizzie Jenkins, a Rosewood historian and educator, has spent the past 30 years preserving and memorializing the Rosewood Massacre, an event that forever changed the lives of her family and many of their friends and neighbors. I am a retired educator, attended school here locally in Alachua County. And heard about the Rosewood story from my mother at age five. And I took that story to college, to school, everywhere with me. And I have been working, uh, doing Rosewood research for the last 29 years. Because my mom said, you must keep the history alive. Because my sister, her sister was the real Rosewood school teacher, had suffered the agony of defeat. She just never, she was never able to let go of the horrible experience uh, when she was a teacher there from 1915 to 1923. My mom said, my sister suffered, therefore you must tell the history. So that's what I try to do. The most important thing to my mother for her sister was to keep the history alive. And, and that's what I do. I speak at schools, colleges, churches, or organizations 
And recently I have been doing quite a few Zooming, <laughs> Zooms, but I enjoy it because history needs to be told, especially Black history. In 1923, Lizzie's aunt, Maholda Gussie Brown Carrier, and her husband, Aaron Carrier, lived in the town of Rosewood. Lizzie's aunt, Maholda, was the town's only school teacher. On the day of the Rosewood Massacre, Lizzie's uncle, Aaron Carrier, was nearly lynched, and her aunt, Maholda, was violently assaulted. On the morning of January 4, 1923, Lizzie's aunt, Maholda, was among those escaping Rosewood by train. After fleeing Rosewood, Maholda and Aaron Carrier never emotionally recovered from the violent attack. They lived in constant fear and even changed their names. As Lizzie Jenkins explains, Rosewood, established in 1855, was a thriving town. At the time of the massacre, everybody worked at the sawmill or turpentine still. So everybody basically in Levy County worked in lumber. And there was also a pencil factory adjacent to Rosewood in the area of Rosewood in Levy County. And many of the people traveled or migrated from Rosewood to between Cedar Key and Sumner and worked at the paper mill. However, after so many years, many of the whites left Rosewood and moved to Sumner where a new sawmill was established. The residents of Rosewood relied on the timber industry for their livelihoods. In fact, the name Rosewood refers to the rose-like color of the local red cedar wood. In 1870, the prospering town of Rosewood even grew large enough for a post office and a train depot. Everybody helped each other. They were giving, and there were a couple of churches there, a Masonic Lodge called the Magnolia Lodge. The number was 148. So they were progressing. They were making progress until January 1, 1923. Everything changed and the, their lives changed. The uh, Black people of Rosewood was no more. They left town overnight on the 4th of January and established new residents in Alachua County and other cities in Florida. Lizzie Jenkins keeps the story of Rosewood alive through the Real Rosewood Foundation, based in Archer, Florida, in Alachua County. The Real Rosewood Foundation was established in 2003, and basically I named it the Real Rosewood Foundation because my history is real. I know what other people say and what you read is not always true. My affirmation is the truth because I have documented it and I enjoy telling it. I have a very diverse uh, board. We give five scholarships, Rosewood scholarships each year, but the scholarship is in memory of the school teacher. So the name of our scholarship is the Mahalda Gussie Brown Carrier Scholarship. We make certain that the scholarships are given in Levy County, where the massacre happened, and in Alachua County, where the Rosewood survivors escaped. We give $2,500 each year for scholarship. Today, there's hardly any evidence that the town of Rosewood ever existed, other than a historical marker that stands where Rosewood used to be. Lizzie Jenkins has a dream to resurrect Rosewood, but in a different location. Right now, we are in the process 
called resurrecting the town of Rosewood in Alachua County, not Levy County, Alachua County, where I live, where I'm sitting right now on my ancestors' property. The teacher taught in Rosewood, Levy County. However, she was born in Archie here on this property. So the property was left to me, 29 acres. I donated it to the Real Rosewood Foundation. This is where we are going to resurrect the town of Rosewood and we're going to build a museum. And I have reliable people connected with the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C., who will be helping us to organize the museum. Lizzie Jenkins and the Real Rosewood Foundation are looking forward to making the Rosewood Museum a reality so that they can continue to educate the public about the town's history. Hopefully we will be able to put a train with a train track here because you know they escaped from Rosewood by train. The museum also is in the process of a letter writing campaign because one of our local, well, my district congressman introduced a bill to make Rosewood a historical landmark. So we will be starting a letter writing soon to get people to participate and help us to make, Rose, make Rosewood a historical landmark. And we are going to be asking people to help us make this a reality. While the story of the Rosewood Massacre was once only whispered about, today it's recognized as a part of history that must be remembered. In 2020, Florida Congressman Ted Yoho introduced Bill H.R. 8502, a bill to recognize Rosewood as a historic landmark. As Lizzie Jenkins explains, during the time of the Black Lives Matter movement, remembrance and reconciliation are key to the healing process. We are in solidarity. We stand in solidarity with Black Lives Movement. However, I have been preaching long before Black Lives uh, Movement. Peace, healing, truth, and reconciliation. That is important to me. We don't have time to be angry. We need to educate, especially our children. And many of them don't know where they, they came from. And you can't go forward if you don't know your history. So it's very important. If it's good or bad, it's history. That history is who we are. We did not create it, but it's our history. We call it Black history, but it's America's history. My great-grandparents walked from Jackson, Mississippi in 1839 to Archer, Florida. And my great-grandmother was still living at 97 when her granddaughter, the school teacher, was still teaching in Rosewood or trying to escape. So history is who we are. We need to respect it and do better. Educating the public about the history of Rosewood is an essential part of the reconciliation and healing process. I asked Lizzie Jenkins how to help keep the memory of Rosewood alive. Most importantly, uh, most needed is funds to help us make the dream a reality, make it come true. And that's why we are going to resurrect the town and hopefully teachers will be able to bring their kids here on field trips. Students can get involved. But I have been helping for 29 years. I have spoken 29 times at the University of Florida, and I do all of my speaking free for the students, for schools, at my expense. That's community service. You can join the Real Rosewood Foundation in their congressional letter writing campaign 
by going to rosewoodflorida.com. There, you can also learn more about the history of Rosewood and the Real Rosewood Foundation. To express your support for Bill H.R. 8502, you can also view sample letters and learn more about the bill. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Where my family home used to be Burned like a brand on a child's memory Where my family's home used to be This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, revisit last year's virtual annual meeting and symposium, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, we have just experienced a year of dealing with a pandemic, and I'm wondering about the history of public health in Florida. Many of the early visitors and tourists to Florida came during the winter months for health reasons. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Tuberculosis was a significant problem across the nation, and the warm, dry winter season in Florida provided an easily accessible respite for people living in the eastern half of the nation. But Florida was not simply a place to rest and recuperate. Its hot, muggy summers and falls were also a time of outbreaks of some of the most dreaded communicable diseases, yellow fever, smallpox, and encephalitis. The Florida Historical Quarterly has published several articles on public health, two dealing with the early decades of the 20th century and one focusing on an incident in 1962. Did these articles you're talking about have a central theme? Well, yes and no. The authors were writing about different diseases, but in all three cases they tie disease and public health to larger developments in Florida history progressive reforms, the Florida land boom of the 1920s, and the role of advertising and newspapers in Florida's economy. How did progressive era reforms figure into public health? Christine Ardelin's very recent article details the rise of modern public health nursing in the progressive era by focusing on Florida-born Mary E. McDonald Carter. Trained at the prestigious New York Bellevue Hospital, Mary spent her life in public health nursing in Cuba, the Philippines, and Florida. Graduates of Bellevue's nursing program worked and lived in the Henry Street Settlement House, 
where they provided social services and nursing for the immigrant populations of the Lower East Side of New York City. So early in her career, she was engaged in one of the foremost progressive institutions. When the Spanish-American War broke out in 1896, she joined the newly formed Army Nursing Corps and served in Cuba and the Philippines, where she worked to create sanitary hospital conditions for wounded and ill soldiers. During an outbreak of typhoid fever in Manila, she recognized the need for access to medical care for the city's residents, especially the poor, and organized a training school for nurses. In July 1918, she returned to Miami and assumed the role of supervisor for public health nursing. One area of particular concern for Carter was the high infant mortality among blacks as compared to whites. In bringing attention to this disparity and organizing black nurses to address the problem, she confronted one of the most racially charged issues of the day. By October of that year, Carter was dealing with the appearance of the outbreak of influenza in Miami, part of the pandemic that caused an estimated 50 million deaths globally and 675,000 deaths in the United States. The need for nurses was acute, and Carter worked tirelessly in an effort to meet that need. In the aftermath of the pandemic, she established a link with the Red Cross Nursing Service that would prove essential in the 1926 and 1928 hurricanes. Ardalan's article helps us understand the importance of public health nursing in providing infant and maternity care and addressing the role of public health efforts against communicable diseases. She also demonstrates the relationship between women in public health and other reform efforts of the progressive era. Connie, tell us about the other two articles. Eric Jarvis, a Canadian historian, has written two articles on public health issues for the quarterly. In the first article on the 1926 outbreak of smallpox, he focuses attention on the weaknesses of the state public health system, the public pressure to manage the news about the number of smallpox cases, and in fact, Florida had the largest number in the country that year, in order to prevent adverse effects on the land boom in South Florida. He also talks about the racism that supported public claims that the outbreak primarily affected black communities and therefore was of little concern for white visitors to the area. The findings in the smallpox article fit well with his work in the 1962 encephalitis epidemic in St. Petersburg and suggests that the state faced some of the same issues. For two months, the disease, which is transmitted by mosquitoes, raged through St. Petersburg and Pinellas County, with as many as 190 cases and 38 deaths. Efforts to contain the encephalitis epidemic were waged on two fronts. First was a war against mosquitoes, and second, a war to contain negative publicity about the outbreak. The war against mosquitoes began with cleanup campaigns and progressed to a misguided campaign to stop public feeding of birds who were thought to be carriers. That brought ridicule from Floridians and outsiders and angered members of the Audubon Society. Finally, the campaign moved to the spraying of pesticides. As Jarvis points out, the city sprayed 70,000 gallons of lethal pesticide 
and encouraged homeowners to engage in their own toxic spraying simultaneously with the release of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Fearful of the effect that such news would have on Florida's tourist economy, community and state leaders launched a second war to contain the news, which also operated against the distribution of good public health information and included public attacks on health officials. The research of public health that Ardalan and Jarvis presented in the three articles demonstrates the frequency of public health crises and the barriers to establishing strong public health institutions in Florida. During not infrequent outbreaks of contagious diseases, the battle to contain the disease was secondary to the battle to contain the news. Well, hopefully our own battle with the current pandemic will end soon. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Justin Lawson is a graduate student at the Gildard Lerman Institute of American History at Pace University. He's been researching the history of redlining in Jacksonville's African-American community. As part of FDR's New Deal, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, or HOLC, released a set of residential security maps in 1938 meant to inform federal mortgage agencies in issuing home loans across America. Neighborhoods were given a grade A through D, with A-rated neighborhoods being deemed best and D-rated neighborhoods being called hazardous and shaded red on the maps. This grading reflected America's existing system of federally sanctioned segregation. Best neighborhoods were almost exclusively white, and hazardous neighborhoods were mainly comprised of minorities. This process is known as redlining. Bruce Mitchell is Senior Research Analyst at the National Community Reinvestment Coalition and explains the redlining process. It's a systematic approach to valuation of neighborhoods that was uh, imposed by the HOLC and really resulted in which communities um, were given mortgage loans and which communities were not given mortgage loans. And, you know, in most cases, these HOLC appraisers, my understanding is that they were generally subcontracted to work with the HOLC program and that um, they generally had some sort of loan or real estate experience with the area. So what this is, HOLC maps are, they're a detailed record of how um, these neighborhoods would have been considered in terms of their lending risk at that time. Following the Great Depression, the federal government stepped in, creating programs such as the Federal National Mortgage Association, better known as Fannie Mae, to secure home loans and prevent massive foreclosures during times of economic recession. This modernization of the lending system, it greatly benefits the white middle class. And you see real expansion of the white middle class uh, during this period, post-war period from the 1940s up to the 1970s. Uh, they're greatly benefited by this. In the meantime, um, black people are not getting the same sort of benefit from this system because they're denied access to a large extent on this lending system that has been created because of redlining. Jason Richardson is the Director of Research with the National Community Reinvestment Coalition and describes the effects redlining had across the country. The effect, of course, is that for homeowners, your wealth increases as well, right? You know, if you if you're if you own a home that's worth $100,000 and I own a home that's worth $500,000, 
I have five times the wealth that you do. So as, as that goes up, uh, you know, that can be a good thing as long as everybody can participate equally. And generally for most of that period, especially from World War II to about the end of the 70s, most white people could participate pretty easily. There were 239 cities with HOLC maps, four of them Florida cities, Jacksonville, Miami, Tampa, and St. Pete. Bruce Mitchell compared two census tracts from Jacksonville, one from an A-rated neighborhood known today as San Marco, located between downtown and the former DuPont estate known as Epping Forest, and one from a D-rated Eastside neighborhood around the Jacksonville Jaguars football stadium, once known as Fairfield. This is a red line track, right? Hazardous grading back in the uh, HULC map. That track has a life expectancy from birth at this point of 69.1 years. It has a poverty rate of 41%, and in terms of health effects, has obesity rates of 47%, okay? Uh, it's also a high minority track. Contrast this with the track that's just barely two miles away, track 16400. This has a life expectancy that's 10 years more than that uh, red line track. It has a poverty rate of uh, 11% and obesity rates of 28% within this tract. And that was a that was a best neighborhood in HLC mapping. So what I'm trying to say is these areas that were downgraded as hazardous, you just see this concentration of, dis of disadvantage and of health effects where people live shorter lives, they have worst health outcomes, they probably have worst outcomes related to COVID-19 and the current crisis that we're undergoing right now, then because they have fewer underlying conditions, then people generally who are in these areas that were uh, the best neighborhoods, that were able to access capital, that were able to uh, maintain higher income communities, it's almost as if we have within our cities two different countries existing side by side with each other. It's just created this tremendous disparity within the American urban system. Jason Richardson. Generally speaking, we've ended busing, right? So uh, unless parents go to the, the effort or if the school district has you know, some sort of a system set up to bus people out of their area, they're gonna to go to neighborhood schools. And when neighborhoods are extremely segregated, that means the schools are gonna be extremely segregated. You know, which then means you have a concentration of poverty in the school system. When you codify this sort of segregation, you, you empower it with longevity that otherwise it may not have had. And so you wind up with neighborhoods that haven't just been poor for the last 10 years. They've been poor for the last century, and there's no indication that they're changing. The kind of stunning thing to think about today is that due to the Great Recession and due to a variety of policies that inhibit lending to minorities. Today, the home ownership rate for African-Americans is lower than it was when segregation was legal. That's kind of a stunning admission of failure when you think about that. Today in Jacksonville, many of the historically black communities listed on the HOLC redline map have been destroyed via eminent domain claims for the construction and expansion of I-95, I-10, and their massive interchange reconstructed in the last decade as well as for the expansion of parking for the newly constructed Federal Courthouse. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Justin Lawson, graduate student in American History with the Gilder Lehrman Institute at Pace University. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week 
You can also listen as a podcast and find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.